Welcome to the USU Career Studio podcast that helps you navigate your career path. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to tell your friends and family all about it. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to get access to our newest content. Thanks for joining us for our Friday face-to-face episode. I'm Marissa Armistead, your host, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Susan and Lynn Thackeray today. Welcome, Thackerays. Thank you. Currently, Susan is an assistant professor of technology management at Utah Valley University. She earned her bachelor's degree in digital media from UVU, master of education in instructional technology from USU, and doctor of education specializing in curriculum, teaching, learning, and leadership from Northeastern University. Lynn is currently a computer science lecturer for UVU. He earned his bachelor's degree in design engineering and computer graphics technology from BYU, his master of education specializing in technology, web technologies, and learning science. He also went on to earn his doctor of education specializing in technical curriculum development, teaching, learning, and leadership from Northeastern University. So I have to start off by asking how your guys' paths crossed. You have such a fun career path that you've kind of built together, but talk to me about where it all began. Susan, uh, let's start with you. So how far back do you want me to go? Where it all began? Yep. <laughs> yep. I've known Lynn for a long time. In fact, I was like 13. And so we were high school sweethearts and we just hit it off. We would talk about nerdy things like all those years ago. And I was attracted that he thought it was fun to talk back to me that way. So here we are. <laughs> wow. Okay. So Lynn, is she leaving anything important out there? Well, we we married uh, quite young. My wife was 18 and I was uh, 21. And so we have been together many, many years, as Susan mentioned. And, you know, we've enjoyed all of at least I have. I have to. Yeah. I'm not tired of him yet. Yeah. (laughs) We still have a lot of fun together. Great. Well, so one of the questions that came to my mind as I was thinking about you two is you both decided to pursue some pretty intensive programs. You know, you both pursued master's and doctorate degrees. So I'm curious, is that something that you had kind of set as a goal early on, or is that something that just developed over time? I'd love to hear about how you kind of created these professional and educational goals together. So Lynn, let's start with you. Well, I always had, a, I don't know if I would term it as a goal. I didn't have an ending outcome identified. I was always a learner and I tried to be an ongoing learner. And so just a natural process in that was to acquire degrees as I went along. I did know, uh, you know, I came from a uh, very rural background. My family were cattle ranchers and farmers going back five generations. It was a little bit different striking out in my education. I'm a a first generation college student, but I I did feel a desire at least to get that bachelor's degree. You know, I I knew from my uh, advisors in high school that uh, a degree does open all sorts of doors for you. That's something that I I push with my students. You have to finish. You have to finish that degree. And just as a process of a lifelong learner, and my wife is a lifelong learner also, I'll let her speak. We decided to, uh, a little bit later in life, we decided to take that journey together. Okay, Susan, I'd love to hear from you. Any other? Yeah, you know, this this is interesting. So building on, you know, how we met, I was just sitting here thinking that one of the first times I really even noticed Lynn in high school was I could always find him in the same spot in our high school library, sitting on the floor, reading books. And I was so intrigued by that. So yeah, together, we've always valued education. We've always valued learning of every aspect. 
And through our journey together, it is really common for both of us. If we don't know how to do something, we learn how to do it and we buy all the equipment and we have the fun and we enjoy that type of a journey. So once we were married, after our first daughter was born, and again, we were young, that was the first thing that Lynn wanted to do was to make sure that he finished that degree. And it was hard because, you know, we were young parents, we had no money and it took a long time, but Lynn didn't give up. I worked finally towards the end. I worked full time so that he could concentrate on school because that's before online learning. And uh, he actually had to show up to class right at 10 in the morning. So it was kind of hard to have a, a job. So we really didn't have the support of parents who paid for everything. And we did it. We And that's, I think of his first, his degree as my degree too. So it was years later after our four children were grown that I went to school for the first first time I went to college for the first time. Great. Well, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to mention, uh, and it's what uh, I think we both instill in our students is that a degree will change the trajectory of your life, change it for the better. It does. It changes the way you think, right? You, you think you, yes, you'll just think does. differently. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, and I love this idea of working on it together. And I love, Susan, that you shared that his degree was also your degree, that that was a team effort. I just, I really appreciate that sentiment. As a follow-up question that I, I'm guessing the answer is probably no, but I have to ask, your degrees are, are similar in a sense of what you were interested in. And so I have to ask, was there ever any competition as you earned these degrees? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> with me, Lynn, I don't know. Were you competitive with me? I was, but here's the problem for me. It's really hard to compete with Lynn. Like he, he is really good at anything he does, anything he sets out to do. So the bar for me is always high. And I just think if I can get somewhere close, then I'm in the, I'm in the ballpark. And he's really nice to like help, you know, help me along and say, you can do this and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm in his shadow. <laughs> oh, uh, we, we're de- uh, the, the hole is definitely better than the sum of the parts. I think we help each other out. Um, yes. And, and, and it's fun. If we hadn't pursued an actual uh, graduate degrees, we would have still been learning. We would, you know, yes. that we've always been learning. That, that is true. And there really was a time in our life that we jointly decided that we wanted to go for those graduate degrees because we knew that this was a great way to give back to our communities by by becoming professors. And we knew that we needed, you know, if, if you want to be an educator, you have to be educated. And so we knew that we needed at least a master's to doctorate level. And so we did talk about that. And that did make our, so I, of course, got my bachelor way after him. But we did our master's together and our doctorate together. And there were friendly competitions along the lines of, hey, did you get that assignment done? Oh, I did. <laughs> it was kind of things like that. But, well, um, and Utah State had a ropes course that they put all of the <laughs> new uh, master's students through. And I think there's a little competition there when up there on those scary ladders. And things. There it totally was. My husband, I got on first before my husband. I was the first adopter. And it was really scary because there were three groups of people people. There were the people that would do it right away, just jump up there and 
I don't know if you've ever done a ropes course, but it's scary. And I'm, we find out, and that's why they had us do it. We found out that I am the type that's the early adopter. I'm the first one. And the first group makes mistakes, right? That you don't do it perfectly. And then the second group will stand and watch the first group make mistakes and prove on it. And then there's the last group that just kind of doesn't want to do it at all. And then there's still another group that didn't even show up that day. They were so um, but but we found out through that experience that I'm the kind of person that will jump right in and make the mistakes and and learn by making the mistakes. And we learned that we we found out that Lynn is the kind that will learn through others' mistakes, and he'll hold back and then he'll do it really well because <laughs> he learns. Well, I love this. And I love this idea of of finding a companion in life who is complementary to us, not necessarily the same, but they work together really well with you. And I feel the same way about my husband. But this is a perfect lead in because I really wanted to learn more about your master's programs at USU. Lindsay, who is the one who brought you both onto the show and asked me if I would ask you because you're wonderful. She said that you both actually traveled to Africa as a part of your culminating education experiences. So I'd love to hear from both of you what that project entailed and how you both found yourself together in Africa working on a master's uh, project. So maybe Lynn, let's hear from you first. Well, it, as mentioned, it was part of our uh, master's degree experience uh, at UVU. And at the time, Susan had the uh, history with Utah Valley and a professor that she was close to was uh, putting together a group to work with the uh, Namibian Polytech. And they were uh, working on asset management. As you know, uh, in Africa had been devastated by the AIDS pandemic. And so big swaths of middle age people were dying of AIDS and it's very much a oral culture there. So the traditions are passed on from the generations through this oral tradition. Well, the people that passed those traditions on were dying off and the government was worried that these traditions would be lost and they had no infrastructure there. It's a very poor country and they wanted to put together a system that could capture this information, you know, written, audio, video, and so forth. And so Susan actually suggested that we could with our technical backgrounds, we could assist in this project. And so that's what we did. We went down, uh, spent quite a bit of time with uh, the professors and the students of the Polytech. It was a very positive experience. And there was learning done on both sides. I know I came back enriched and my uh, horizons were significantly broadened by the experience. And Susan, for you, from that experience, I'd love to hear from your perspective what it was like, what you learned, maybe what you learned about each other in that experience. Yeah, as Lynn mentioned, my background's in digital media. And so some these were some of my former colleagues at Utah Valley University. And so they were generous enough to let us as Utah State University graduate students to come and set up some things. It was going to be a five-year project. So we were supposed to set up a structure of how we would organize these assets. So we got permission to go. And the thing that I learned about Lynn when I was down there, and it, it was it, for me, it was extremely profound in addition to just the learning that took place of being in another culture. And at the time, I was real strong in web development. And at the time, my knowledge base was about three years ahead of what was happening down in Namibia. So it was almost like seeing the future. And, um, you know, you could share with them how that industry would go and teach them skills that they could make some really good money at. 
Anyway, what I learned about Lynn was there was a particular uh, day when we had to organize a whole database and what how we were going to structure this five-year project. I was busy with some research, and so Lynn took the lead on that, and I watched his presentation, and I was so impressed how he was able to just organize a long-term project so quickly. So I really, I learned, and he got that basically from, you know, being in industry. He had way more experience than I did at that time. And so I recognized he could teach me a lot and he has. And again, opening it up, I guess, to both of you, I'd love to just hear maybe one thing that you learned in that experience that you feel like maybe you couldn't have learned anywhere else. Was there anything that stood out to you being in a different culture that you learned? Yeah. Students want to learn uh, no matter where they're from, no matter what culture they're in. And they'll use, uh, you know, obviously we're all products of that culture we're raised in. They will use the resources there. Well, in Namibia, the resources were very scarce. We went out to what was called an informal settlement, which in America that would be called maybe a shanty town of the 1930s, and no electricity or limited electricity, no plumbing, and yet they had a school set up and they were trying to teach their students. They were sharing pencils and paper and they had really no resources, but these students who oftentimes didn't have enough to eat would be going to this school. This was a uh, primary school. And I saw the same thing in the students students at the Polytech. Oftentimes, we found out that they would walk to school miles every day just to get to school. They did want to learn. Once you got past that, they were like students anywhere. They were funny. They were uh, used critical thinking skills and wanted to improve their lives through education. I, I totally agree. And I also had the benefit when I was there. I don't know if you, I don't think you went with me, Lynn, but I actually went out and visited some junior highs and a middle school. And then, of course, we worked with the polytechnic college level students. And then we saw a lady that started a nursery school. One of the things that I thought was unique is their traditional culture was the faculty, the teacher was the sage on the stage, that they were the all knowing in the front of the classroom. And uh, the students quietly listened and took notes and there was very, I thought, very little interaction at all, at all levels. So one of the things that we did when we came down and we taught a few of the classes is we shook it up a little bit and we did hands-on learning because that's how I teach, right? You know, you let them try it and give them the equipment they need to, to let them try the concepts that you're teaching. And they were a little nervous at first, but then they adopted it really quickly. And so that was exciting to just watch the students learn with a different approach. Absolutely. Well, and that makes me think even to my own education experience, just how you said different professors have different ways of sharing information. And I love that you tried multiple approaches to reach students who maybe did need a learning style that was different than what they had grown up in. So I love that you were able to to provide a new perspective in that way. Lynn, one follow-up question that I, I wanted to chat with you about is about your dissertation, which was about women in computer science. And you really looked at what contributes to women's selection and persistence in computer science as an academic major. So I'd love to hear what piqued your interest in this topic. Well, that topic, my background in industry informed that topic. I was in the computer science sector, the software development sector for 25 years prior to moving into academia. And this is both in California and in Utah. And the experience was that diversity matters. It matters greatly in a very creative field. Actually, it matters greatly anywhere. But if you're in a creative field, a, a situation, you want input 
from different people that come from different backgrounds. And it was hard to do that. As I progressed in my career, became a manager and a VP, and, and I would try to hire for diversity. And particularly in Utah, that was a hurdle. I was at one company and went through 200 resumes. And I would say maybe 3% of the those resumes were from women. And so that was something that I wanted to pursue, get to the bottom of that, find out what the situation is, because the few women that I did work with are exemplary, very good. And, and so there needed to be, in my mind, some way to lower the bridge in getting women and young junior high girls interested in science, in technology, in math. Absolutely. I love that. So Susan, kind of on a similar vein, I would say you had a research interest in underrepresented populations in science, technology, engineering, and math. So same question to you, what led to your interest in that? So being an underrepresented woman in my field, I found myself always maybe being the only one or maybe one of two, something along those lines in my classes. And I also felt, I felt different, right? Like I felt like sometimes that I didn't belong. And my history actually goes way back to high school when we lived in a rural community and there was one math teacher and you had the same guy every year and he just didn't believe that women had any business in that math class. And so he, I I feel like he held me back in a sense, because by the time I graduated, I just didn't feel like it was an avenue, even though that's where my interest was. So when it came time to do my research, I wanted to know if other people had experienced similar things, that they had received subtle messaging and being told young women and, and even people minorities, the statistics are very similar, that they don't belong in these careers and they don't have what it takes. And what that's called is self-efficacy. There's some point in their life that that they don't see themselves in that. And I can't tell you how many older women that have dropped out of STEM fields and they all have a story on what happened. Um, Somebody told them, you know, not to continue or, you know, somebody told them it was too hard for them. And so I wanted to know, there's a lot of research around why women quit or fail out, but there's very little research on what makes them stay. And so um, I researched women in Utah, where there is a culture of that women should stay home and raise children and not pursue certainly a a STEM degree, but maybe even a degree in general. And I wanted to know where that message was coming from and why the women that did go through a program, a STEM and get a STEM degree, what kept them there? And it was a fascinating um, research. They don't, they don't recognize themselves. The outcome is that they don't recognize themselves as trailblazers. They do work harder and uh, they recognize that they feel like they're, you know, isolated and they're the only ones. And there's a unique sense that women disapprove of them and men disapprove of them because they're going against the cultural norms and they, they but they don't recognize their the power that they can lend to the diversity of the industry like Lynn was saying you know they could help change they also have a tendency to not bring other women along they fight their way in through this degree and they and then they just carry on they don't I guess they don't recognize their power and uh so it was a fascinating and my participant sample were universities across the state of Utah. Such interesting research. And it sounds like you both 
have a similar goal of really understanding why underrepresented populations aren't entering this field that you both are so passionate about, which I think is really cool. And it made me think of an interview I actually just did not too long ago with a female engineer who is recent to the field. And we talked about some of these things. And I am really hopeful, especially after that conversation with her, I'm really hopeful that we are starting to see some changes in this stigma that has been in Utah, but but I would say worldwide. I think we are starting to see changes in that because of the work that you and, and so many others are doing. So really appreciate you sharing those and your work in the field. One thing I, I also wanted to move into as well. So now you both work for Utah Valley University. Susan, you're an assistant professor of technology and management and Lynn, you're lecturing in computer science. So I would love to hear from each of you just to learn a little bit more about what your positions look like pre-COVID and then what they look like currently. So Lynn, let's start with you. Well, pre-COVID, all of my classes were taught on campus in a uh, traditional classroom. And prior to coming to UVU, I did teach at another university that was primarily online. So, you know, I had experience teaching online, but at UVU, it was all in class. So you had a uh, personal relationship with most of the students. You knew who they were, if, if not by name, at least by sight. And the communication was asynchronous and synchronous both. They could ask questions to you in the classroom. They could email you afterwards, they could walk into your office. And so had a very hands-on uh, relationship. And, you know, you can catch issues early. If someone's struggling, you often can uh, see that early in the classroom. And I would have in-class assignments where I would observe very short-term assignments that were completed during the class period and got really good feedback that way of how my uh, teaching was going, what I needed to focus on and things like that. You know, going totally online after uh, the, the COVID pandemic had started, you lose some of that. And at UVU, we have two types of online. We have a what we call streaming, where it is distance delivered, but uh, the normal times that you would spend in the classroom two or three times a week, you actually had a meeting through Zoom or Teams to where everybody would gather and discuss. And that's streaming. And then, of course, we have the fully online where it's all asynchronous. You know, you can post videos and perhaps have an online online chat, but you don't have that communal meeting time. And so, you know, you have to modify your teaching when you're teaching online. And actually, uh, contrary to some popular belief, teaching online is more challenging and more work than teaching on campus. You can't be that sage on the stage and just stand up and talk because you don't have a stage anymore. You actually have to design your course to be relevant and provide good teaching material. Absolutely. And Susan, same question to you. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what your position looked like pre and during COVID. So mine's similar to Lynn, and both of us have backgrounds in delivering distance technical courses. So we've been at this for a while, and we have expertise. I also teach adjunct to Northeastern in the summer, and so that's all distance delivered to doctorate-level students. And then the first semester of COVID, I had a live stream graduate class actually through the School of Business. I'm in the College of Engineering and Technology and Technology Management. Management, and we have a degree at UVU that has, it's a master in business with a technology management 
focus. And so um, I taught the first tech management course and it was live stream and it worked out fine that, you know, students are used to it. One of the hallmarks of my online classes that I get a lot of pushback on, I still do group projects. I just feel like that's super important that students are working together. But when in an asynchronous class, you can't insist that students meet at the same time because that's not what they signed up for. And so um, I feel like that mirrors the industry right now. You may be in a different time zone and they those students need to figure out how to work in a group and with different schedules and different time zones. How will they keep communicating? You know, how will they um, complete a project? And uh, I do get a lot of pushback, but usually at the end of the semester, the students begin to see the value. I was going to mention too, I know that Lynn does a really good job. He does really excellent videos that he posts to his online courses. And so that students can, you know, review. And, and I think in his discipline, that's really critical. Uh, computer science is a thing that, you know, you need to hear several times. Lynn, if you want to talk about that. My teaching is informed by my industry experience. So everything that I do is geared towards getting the students prepared to hit the ground running when they graduate. And so my assignments, my assessments are all focused on that. And rather than have just a 10 or 12 week long programming assignments, I'll put together a semester long problem for them to solve. And there will be several phases to that. And that mimics what they would normally see in industry. A large project where they'd have release one, release two, release three. And as Susan mentioned, teamwork is very important in all disciplines, but particularly in computer science because the technology is advanced to uh, such a degree that there's no individual contributors anymore coming up with a killer concept. All software is created by teams. And so what was once a uh, soft skills, you know, communication and writing and working together as teams, those are actually skills that are interviewed for. They're not soft anymore. You need those skills. And so some of my focus, I know some students focus is on developing those skills. And something that I'm kind of hearing from both of you is we need to be developing technical skills, whether we think of them as technical or not. Uh, whether it's communicating via email or Zoom or whatever it may be, where technology is becoming more and more integrated into our everyday lives and, and especially the workplace. So, and I didn't prepare you for this question, but I'd love to hear if you had to hypothesize, where do you see education moving forward? Do you see more and more technology integrated into the classroom? Do you see more teaching maybe from a distance? What do you think the future looks like? So I am actually working on an initiative that's in Utah right now, credit for prior learning and prior learning assessment. I think some of the future is that universities are going to do better at assessing and giving credit to experiences and learning that takes place outside the traditional classroom. And that's a little bit difficult to assess that fairly so that your accreditation stands strong within a university. And so faculty and universities need to learn how to do that better. There's some talk about competency-based education, same thing, that's that's a difficult to assess. And competency-based education is different than credit for prior learning, two different concepts. But I see this gravitating more towards that. I do think that when we keep talking about return to normal, I think we have learned some new things uh, through the COVID experience that we're finding out that distance delivered courses sometimes are, are really good with people that maybe have learning challenges. There's people that are in the workforce. It's tailored to 
to their schedules. So I think we're going to see some changes in the university to reach out to adult learners and learners who have needs. Like we talked about earlier, when Lynn Lynn went to school, you had to be in the classroom in a seat at 10 in the morning on a Tuesday. And I think we're going to see a little more flexibility so people can complete degrees while they work. Education has been evolving quite heavily for the last 20 years. The student body is becoming older. When I went to school, as Susan mentioned, you showed up at 10 in the morning. And if you had a job, you better go to that job after you go to school. And so if you had not completed your degree by 21, 22, 23, pretty much over for you. Well, the the uh, lifelong learners, that didn't fit, that model didn't fit very well. And so there's been an evolution. Students are actually becoming older. They're becoming lifelong learners. And even prior to the pandemic, I would have students in my class that were older than me, uh, my age or so forth. They Maybe some of them had a degree and we're coming back to go into a different field. In fact, we've just in the computer science department have released a programming degree for older students that have a degree already but want to move into programming. And this is well underway and I I certainly supported that. And so you don't have to be the young 20-year-old to get a degree. You can be a retired person. You can be a person that's worked for 10 years in the industry and want to go back. Now, what the pandemic has done, it is fundamentally fundamentally changed how, at least at UVU and, and other universities that I, I'm aware of, how the mindset of the professors, the mindset of the staff at the university. And I think this will, after the pandemic is over, education is going to come out of this much changed. There will be much more offerings in asynchronous and online, and that's more opportunities for people who are challenged in ways, particularly uh, with their schedule. You know, they might have small children at home, they might be working a full-time job, and they can't drive into campus find a parking place and spend all day, but yet they can continue their education through some of the technologies that are emerging and will become more pronounced going forward. Zoom and other voice over IP technologies and cloud sharing. That's all going to impact for the better, I think, our education going forward. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I love that you tied it back into how this might help some of these underrepresented populations you're talking about and opening up access for students. While online doesn't remove all academic barriers, obviously, I think you're right that it will open up a lot of doors for less traditional students, if you will. Lynn, one thing I I also wanted to follow up about your work. So when we're looking at women's persistence in, in computer science, I'm really curious, what were some of the top indicators that women showcased when they were able to persist and graduate within a degree. So what were some of those top indicators that they were going to continue? And that's a very good question. There's been a lot of research on why women are not more represented in the technologies. My research was on computer science and on the women that did persist and were successful. What were the common indicators there? And by and large, it was they had a mentor. They had a female mentor that helped them that they could look look up to. And those are few and far between in computer science. I mean, it's getting better now, but those are few and far between. Additionally, I had several research students that I did the research on that had come from a military background. They joined the Army and the and the Navy. And in there, they were given a choice of two or three specialties and they were given aptitude tests. 
and they scored real high in technology. And, and to them, that was just, that was news to them. They hadn't really pursued it in high school or anything. And so they were moved into these technical specifications, programming and IT, and they excelled at it. They excelled at it. And so they were able to overcome some of this inertia that said, no, you, you want to pursue other paths. This is a male-dominated occupation. And so they were able to overcome that. The other students, you know, they had some female mentors and there are still hurdles. They're, they're coming down. Down. They're coming down quite a bit, but just generally being, as my wife mentioned, the only female in a class of 30, that can be kind of intimidating. And, you know, it's kind of sad in a way, because if you look at the history of computer science, some of the great pivotal moments came from women. The first female programmer ever was a female, Augusta Lovelace. And then in the 40s and 50s, some of the pioneers were, were female, Grace Hooper, for example. So it's just our society, our Western society society that I think has put up some roadblocks. If you look at some of the other uh, societies, even uh, societies that don't have the greatest record for women's rights in the Mideast, you go over there and their classes are much more evenly dispersed, male, female. And so we have some catching up to do in this country. Well, and I think you bring up a great point. I love this idea of female mentors. That's something that's come up in other conversations. I had Susan Madsen on on our show not too long ago, and that's something that she and I have talked about, the importance of female role models. But also, I love that you pointed out that they took these aptitude tests that reassured them of skill sets that they had. And I think that is so critical that we're not only providing mentors, but we're also saying you do have the skills, you do have this capacity or this ability to pursue this type of field. So I think that's a really interesting insight. Susan, did you have anything you wanted to add on? That's exactly right. That's what my research uh, showed. I spend a lot of time on the self-advocacy thing. And the first group of females that we lose is right around junior high age from 12 to about 14. And that's exactly the time for a good intervention is to have projects for them. They already show an interest and they want to participate. But if you can show them and do projects that they have what it takes, that's exactly, you're exactly right. That's what's needed. One of the things that's interesting in my research compared to Lynn's as mine showed that it was men who helped the women build this sense of self-efficacy, that it was the male voices. And a lot of times people think that young females should be taught alone, just female groups. And really the research shows that it's good for male and female to be together at that age and so that the males can see that the females do have efficacy and it allows the males to learn how to support women in these roles and make room for them and move them through a system where they're underrepresented. A strong male voice at the table convincing other males that these women does change a culture is what I identified. But yes, we need to see it to be it. We Female role models are good. However, right now there's not a lot of them. So what my research showed by the women that were succeeding is they recognized that they might not find that female role model and they had to be it or they had to find male role models that were willing to move them forward. This is so interesting. And, you know, I was, it made me reflect on my own experiences because I've had, I've been fortunate and had both female and male role models in my field in career services. And both were instrumental in in different ways, but I agree that both were helpful as I've built my career and continue to. So I love that perspective of needing mentors from all sides. Well, Thackeray's, we are just about out of time here, but I do want to close with one final question and I'll have each of you respond. Susan, I'll have you go first. If you could give one piece of advice to our listeners about developing a mindset of lifelong learning, what would it be? 
just one is hard, but I think my number one would be accept that sometimes trying new things may feel uncomfortable. You may feel different. You may not even feel very good at it. And that a lifelong learner, you, you just keep learning, right? It, it's okay to, to sit with that feeling of, you know, maybe you were the only female in a class or, or maybe you didn't do it so well. So back, I guess, back to that ropes course experience, jump right in and try something new and you'll get better with practice. You'll get better. Love that. And Lynn, same question to you. What advice would you give for building a mindset of lifelong learning? Well, and as Susan mentioned, that's a hard question because there's a lot of <laughs> the only competition that we as students have are, are with ourselves. And as, student, as Susan mentioned, it doesn't matter your velocity. Just keep moving forward. Keep learning. And as you gain knowledge and experiences, because we also learn through our experiences, we enrich our lives. And in turn, we enrich others around us. Love that. Well, I have to say, I feel privileged to have had such a power couple on the show today. I've learned so much. I wish we had another three or four hours to continue this conversation, but I really, really appreciate you sharing your career paths and experience with us today. Well, thank you. This has been yeah, fun. Thank you for the opportunity. If you're interested in learning more about the need for diversity in the Utah STEM workforce, please check out the link in this episode's bio below. Thanks for joining us here at the Career Studio today. Remember to join us next week as we begin to discuss our new monthly theme of turning failures into bright futures. 